The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. What Luke does is he reveals the important thing about who the people of the king are and who the king is. But first, I wanted to rehearse something that we've talked about before. Let me, when Jesus was casting out demons at one point, uh, people began to complain and say he was doing it in the power of Beelzebul, which is Satan. And uh, they were saying, this isn't God, this is the devil. And so Jesus responded this way. Uh, first he said, a house, if a house is divided against itself, it's going to crumble. So if Satan is casting out his own demons, then he can't stand. But then he says this, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, that is the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a very strong expression. It means it's, it's landed on you. You are in the midst of it. You're experiencing the power of the kingdom being manifested by what Jesus is doing. And then we're also told that the gospel of the kingdom is the message that Jesus preached. He preached the, the gospel of the kingdom. And basically this is what he says in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, it's here. Well, how is that? How can, how can the kingdom of God be here? Well, because the king was here. And they were seeing the power of the king right before their eyes. They were seeing him manifest the power of the king of the kingdom of God. Now, amazingly, most of them did not repent. Most of them did not believe this gospel of the kingdom, that the king was present, and they rejected Christ. In fact, uh, if you remember, one of the people that received him as Messiah, as the promised Messiah, was the Samaritan woman at the well. She first wondered, could this be the Christ? And why did she think that? Because he was telling her everything about her life that nobody would know. Certainly not this Jewish man. And then she became convinced that he really was the Messiah. The the Messiah was going to come and be king of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, as you know... This confused many Jews because what they had assumed, just like us, we have all kinds of assumptions in our lives. I have this assumption that that I know it's there, even though I know it's not true. And that assumption is bad things shouldn't happen to believers who are walking in fellowship with God. (laughs) That's a lie. That's a false assumption. And you don't have to go very far in the Bible to find that out. God uses trials and tribulations in the lives of believers to conform them into the image of Christ. And so he's never promised us that we would have a difficult free life. I had my email hacked, like everybody else that has a Yahoo email. And uh, so people who had sent me emails began to get this email that was appealing to help me because I was stranded in the Philippines at an airport and my wife had lost her passport. So they were asking for uh, $1,250. And I thought, nobody will fall, fall for that. I hope nobody's here that fell for that. But if you ever sent me an email, you may get one of these. I finally, it took me four or five days to straighten out my email. Uh, But then I get this email from a friend over in Albuquerque, a dear brother who's in the ministry. He's he's in his middle 80s. 
And he called me and he said, I got this email. I said, you didn't send anything, did you? He said, yeah, I did. I sent $1,250 to help you get out of that airport. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm really moved that you would care about me that much. But I got to tell you, it was a scam. And so he's trying to retrieve his money. And um, I've already decided I'm going to make him whole if he doesn't. Because it wasn't my fault, but it was because of me. Because he had sent me many emails. And this is how they got his email. Um, He's hoping he can retrieve it because it was made out to me. And he can't understand how anybody in the Philippines could cash a wire that was made out to me. Because they don't have any ID. But it isn't hard to get ID, is it? And so it didn't surprise me that they got the money. They wrote him back and said, actually, that wasn't enough money because of the exchange rate. Could you send us another $1,500? Well, he knew better by this time, and so he didn't send the $1,500. Well, I got to tell you, I've been frustrated all week. (laughs) And especially, I couldn't get my password changed on my email. And I just about drove everybody out of our house as my expressions of frustration. I had a brother tell me recent, last year, I think, or a couple years ago, that when he got saved, surprisingly, all the stuff he used to get frustrated about just went away. I don't know if it's come back. I've been a Christian for many, many years, and I thought it was gone. And I realized I had to actually repent for this stupid idea that I have that bad things don't happen to God's people. (laughs) I know that's not true, but that's how I acted, as though this is some surprising thing. And this is exactly what Jesus said, don't be surprised. Because God knows how to use difficulties in our life to get us to turn to him. Well, Jesus, when he came into the world, he came into the world as Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one from the Old Testament. But he also came as the king of the kingdom of God. And sometimes this confuses people. Wait a minute, this isn't the kingdom. Well, in fact, what Jesus said was, the law and the prophets, that is the old covenant, were proclaimed until John. Now, we're told that John was the last old covenant prophet, John the Baptist, who came to announce that the Messiah was coming. And he preached to the nation of Israel that they should come and be baptized and prepare their hearts for the coming of Messiah, the king. But this is what happened. Many of these Jews, assuming that the king would get rid of their enemies and set them free from the bondage they were in to Rome. And so they just assumed he was going to come and rule over the whole world because the Old Testament talks about that. But this phase of the kingdom is not that phase. This phase of the kingdom is when the king comes, demonstrates his power so that we can understand that this is truly the Messiah and put our trust and faith in him and receive salvation. And so when he says that the law and the prophets were preached throughout the Old Testament up through John, and he says, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way in it. We don't have to explain that until we get to Luke 16. By that time, I'll have it figured out. (laughs) But notice this. Um, The present form of the kingdom, we've talked about this before, but let me bore you and tell you that this is such a clear biblical principle. In Colossians chapter 1, it tells us that he rescued us from the domain of darkness. That is the kingdom of darkness, the rule, the authority of darkness. 
That is the satanic kingdom. He has delivered us from that and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The father has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the present form of the kingdom manifested on earth. You see, we, re- we submit to a king that we can't see. I, I hope you heard this morning. In fact, I think it ha- I have it on here. Um, <clears throat> the future form of the kingdom of God is coming and we pray for it when we pray the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the future form of the kingdom. When the entire world is going to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is the Christ. There's not going to be any sin and when the kingdom of God comes to earth. We're going to live in a perfect situation. I, uh, <clears throat> I was listening to Paul Washer this past week and he said, uh, these, he's talking to a bunch of young preachers and he said, one of the things that you need to be <clears throat> clear about is there are four pillars of Christianity and here's what they are. You, need, you must learn the truth through the word of God What does the Bible actually teach? What is the truth that it reveals about Christ and about us and about salvation? And then he says, secondly, you have to believe this truth. And third, this is the result of those two things. You'll have joy. This is all this is, is Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 14. When Paul prayed for the Colossians, he says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects. And he goes on to describe that kind of lifestyle. When he says, joyously giving thanks to the Father. This is one of the pillars, is joy. I had no joy this past week until about yesterday. (laughs) And here's the problem. The fourth pillar is obedience. And guess what? Guess what motivates obedience? The joy of the Lord. That's why the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's the joy of the Lord that motivates you to obey the Father. And so the way that we get to that place is we, get, we are filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That includes knowing and taking in and believing the truth. So this truth must be important because it's revealed to us here. That there is a future form of the kingdom that we are not seeing yet, but we are in the present form of the kingdom, and Jesus is reigning over his people. And he is king. And we are to treat him as a king. We are to submit to him as a king. We are to realize that he has all authority in heaven and upon earth. Why in the world did the disciples give their lives to going and making disciples of all the nations? Why did the apostles do that? Why did they go in every direction to make disciples? Because Jesus let them in on a secret. All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. In other words, the reason, if you don't understand that Jesus has received all authority in heaven and upon earth, you're going to be reluctant to make disciples. Now, making disciples, we're not going to talk about a lot of that today, but making disciples is what the mission of the church is. And if you don't know how to do that, please let us know. We'd like to help you come to see it in the word of God. 
Because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you've got to tell them in the gospel. And then he says, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, the problem with that is, do you know what he's commanded you? Did the apostles know? Yeah, they knew. In fact, Jesus said, you will supernaturally remember. I'm going to send the spirit and he's going to open your mind and your memory so that you remember exactly what I have commanded and it's passed on to us in the word of God. For examples, it tells us to forgive one another. And I'm sure there's nobody here carrying a grudge against somebody who's abused you or or did something against you and then they came and asked your forgiveness and you thought, forgive you? You gotta be kidding me. Yes, that's what he's commanded. Remember what Peter said? If I do it seven times, is that enough? And Jesus said, I don't say seven times, I say 70 times seven. What he meant by that, there is no limit. There's no limit. And why can we forgive each other? We can forgive each other because we have been forgiven by the Father for Christ's sake, because of what Christ did. Since Christ died for our sins, he forgave us when we believed. And when we are, we are angry with somebody because of something they did against us, they committed a trespass, as the Sermon on the Mount, I mean the Lord's Prayer describes. And you, I don't know if you caught that when we read through there. This is a kind of a shaking thing. He says, forgive, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say after that, if you don't forgive those who trespassed against you, then your father in heaven won't forgive you your trespass. Because it is a trespass not to forgive a repentant person for their trespass against you. Isn't that something? That's what he's commanded of us. He's commanded us to love each other the way he loved us. Well, how much is that? Lay down his life for us. I mean, get this, that he tells the rich young ruler because he knew it was in his heart and head. He knew that he valued his riches more than he valued a relationship with God. And so he said, the roadblock in your life is this. And this is a cure for it. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I'd like you to stop and think about that. What if that, what if we told you that's the gospel? You got to sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow Jesus. And you're thinking, no way. Would you be willing to? Is Jesus of more value to you than anything that you possess and everything that you possess? Is he? That's his point. That's what he's driving home to this rich young ruler. He's driving home to him that your heart is owned by your riches. And so we have to ask ourselves once in a while, what owns my heart? What is it that owns my heart? What is it that I would never give up? That's the very thing that God's going to put his finger on. Now, in the present form of the kingdom, we serve a king that we can't see. But there's coming a day when we'll be in his presence. When, when the kingdom of God, when the new Jerusalem comes to the earth and the kingdom of God is on earth as we pray for, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the father's kingdom in, conf, in, in kind of contrast to the present form of the kingdom of the son. And uh, that day's coming. 
So what in this passage, we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 36. There are six stories here. In some translations, there are six paragraphs. In the right translation, there are six paragraphs. So you can check your Bible, see if it's the right translation. <laughs> uh, there are six different stories here. And interestingly, they reveal the truth about God's, about the king's people. And they revealed the truth about the king. And this is the way it goes. The, the odd numbers, one, three, five, revealed who the king is. And the even numbers, two, four, six, the second, fourth, and sixth story reveal who the king is. He's revealed. And so we're going we're gonna to look at these things. And if you, you notice, first of all, this is, this is uh, what happens in these verses. Uh, but anyway, the, people's, the king's people are revealed in the, these three stories. The first is the 12 are sent by the king to proclaim the kingdom. I, as I read this this week, I got to tell you, I, I thought, why didn't, why didn't Jesus give us that assignment? He tells his disciples, his 12 apostles, he says, I want you to go. And he's talking about them going in the area of Israel. In the next chapter, he's going to send 70 others out to cover the entire area of Israel. He's just, they're supposed to go into a village, a little town, and just wait until somebody invites them in. And he said, if they invite you in, you go in. You, you go and stay in their home. He says, don't take one thing one ounce of anything other than just the bare necessities of your clothing, not extra clothing. In fact, he says you can't even take two tunics, which means two undershirts. You can't take any extra underwear. And get this, you're, you're going to go out, you can go in a city, wait for somebody to invite you in. You go in to their house, and if they'll listen to you, you tell them the gospel of the kingdom. The king has arrived and he's demonstrated his power. He has healed the sick and raised the dead. And he's cast out demons. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. If they receive the message, stay there until you leave the city. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and move on. That's what he tells them. And then secondly, the second story that reveals God's, the king's people is the feeding of the 5,000 men. That means there were probably 10,000 because there were 5,000 men and they, some of the, many, most of them had their wives with them and maybe some children. How do you feed, feed 5,000 men plus their wives and children? How do you do that? They're in, a, they're in a wilderness place as we'll see in just a minute. In fact, forgive me, I should have read this passage to you first. That would have been better, wouldn't it? Luke chapter 9. Well, let me read the first 36 verses. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. All right, come on. Think about this. Jesus gives them the authority and the power over all demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag. You can't even take a little suitcase. Nor bread, nothing to eat, nor money. And, and there, there were no credit cards. 
That's all they could do is take some coins with them to buy food. He says, not even money. And do not even have two tunics, two undershirts, the shirt that was against the skin. Do you think they'd have to trust him to obey this commandment? Now, what they've seen and what we've seen in the book of Luke, they've seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, do miraculous things. And now they're going to see him feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. It goes on. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and just move on. You know, sometimes we're tempted to twist people's arms so much, we're going to force them to believe the gospel. Sometimes it gets like that in some preaching, doesn't it? We beg and plead and, and do everything we can to get somebody to turn to Christ. But Jesus says to them, if they don't want to hear it, move on. Then he says, departing, they begin going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That's the first story. The second, and then he goes on, beginning in verse 7. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. Why was he perplexed? Because he had killed John the Baptist, and everybody says to him, we think it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. If you're a king who executed you, he beheaded, he beheaded John the Baptist at a party. And now somebody's telling him he's raised from the dead. It goes on, he says, by, and by, he says, because it was said by uh, some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Why were they saying that? Because he was doing supernatural things. The word was getting around. He healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons. And then, verse 9, Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear these things? And he kept trying to see him. He wanted to meet Jesus. He thought that he could probably, he wanted to meet him because he was a celebrity. It'd be like meeting somebody famous. He wanted to meet him because he was a king. Then in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. If you were looking at a map, Bethsaida is now nothing but rubbles, but it, it used to be right on the eastern side of the Jordan River at the, above the Sea of Galilee. So it's out in kind of a wilderness area, like a desert. And so it says, but the crowds were aware of this. They knew where he was. And so the crowds followed him. And welcoming welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending. And the 12 came and said to him, they need to inform him of something, (laughs) the king. And so it says, they say to him, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here 
we are in a desolate place. We're like in a desert place, kind of like the children of Israel were in those 40 years. How are you going to feed two million people in the Exodus? The same way Jesus fed these people through the power of God manifest. But Jesus says to them, I love this about Jesus. Does he ever do this to you? But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) 5,000 men and their wives and children. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Perhaps we go and buy, and, and perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. And then in parentheses, uh, Luke writes, for there were about 5,000 men. This is a big crowd. There's no way they could buy enough food. There's no McDonald's. There's no fast food place. How do you even, how, even if you had some food, how would you prepare it? And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. Why would he tell them to feed them, get them food? He's testing their faith. No, testing their faith means he already knows what the condition of their faith is, but he wants to grow their faith. It should have been to the point where they could say, we know you can feed them. Tell us what to do. But instead, they said, you need to send them somewhere so they can buy some food. That's the kind of wisdom we often manifest. We don't expect God to do anything supernatural. Verse 15, they did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves. He took what they had. That's all they had, five loaves and two fish. Could you feed your family on that? We couldn't. Imagine a Thanksgiving meal and you have five loaves and two fish, dried fish. (laughs) And Jesus looking up to heaven, he blessed them and he broke them and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. Kind of sounds like the way God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness, doesn't it? The manna from heaven. God just supernaturally provided And they all ate and were satisfied. I always want to say, when were you last satisfied when you ate? (laughs) And they ate and were satisfied. 5,000 men and however many others there were. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up. 12 baskets full. Wait a minute. Five loaves wouldn't fill 12 baskets. But that's how many, that was what was left over. Remember what God did to Israel when, they, when he gave them manna? He said, just get enough for tomorrow and leave the rest. Because if you take more than you need for the day, then it's going to corrupt. And it did. It turned rotten. <laughs> Why did he do that? He wanted them to learn this lesson. This is why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, our economy isn't like this. Most of you work and you get paid twice a month or four times a month, once a week, whatever. But in this time, the way it worked was a man worked for a day and he got paid for a day's wages. And then he would buy food for his family. But in this case, God provides, Jesus provides In verse 18, and it happened that while he was praying, 
alone. The disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God, the Messiah of God, the one that God promised. That's who you are. You see, that was faith. They believed because he gave them evidence that he was the son of God, that he was the king that the father sent, the Messiah. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And then he explains why. This is what he says. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, the leadership of Israel, the spiritual leadership of Israel. He has to be be rejected by them and the scribes and to be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is the first time that Jesus reveals to them the passion, the suffering that he faces. This is his first announcement of it. And he tells them, I don't want you to tell anybody that I'm the Messiah because I have to go through this first. And then you'll proclaim proclaim that I'm the Messiah. Once he's been crucified, laid in a tomb and raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out the Spirit. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross was the implement of death. Dying to self and being willing to die physically in order to follow him. Well, none of us are in that danger. In my whole lifetime, I've never heard of a Christian being killed in the United States in our culture for being a Christian. Now, there have been people going to a church. We had somebody do this recently. But I doubt that that was because they were Christians living for Christ and testifying of Christ. It was probably wanting to do something that would make him famous or infamous. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The son of man, that's him, the Messiah, the identified Messiah of God. The son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. In other words, if you don't, if you don't believe on me, this is the thing that separates us. It's believing on Christ, the Messiah, God's Messiah, who was sent into the world to die for our sins. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you, Truthfully, there are, some of, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. They're seeing it. In fact, what they're going to see real quick is they're going to see Christ in his glory right before their eyes. If I can go on, verse 28. Some eight days after this, this, these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. 
And I think this is what he's talking about. I could be wrong. That's my opinion that that's what he's talking about is they're going to see the kingdom of God in a manifest way. And listen to what happens while he was praying. The appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. Two men are talking with Jesus and they were Moses and Elijah. (laughs) Moses, the prophet of God, was the beginning of the prophets and Elijah, the Moses represented the the law and the prophets, the law and the and then Elijah the prophets. And here we go, verse thirty two. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and then two men standing with him. They saw Elijah and Moses. And in and as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Now you see what's wrong with that, right? Moses and Elijah are not Jesus. They're not the Messiah. They're the prophets of God. The ultimate prophet is here. The son of God. And so Peter says, Master, why don't we build three tabernacles? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What he has just done is brought Jesus down from his glory to the level of Moses and Elijah. And it says, Luke says, not realizing what he was saying. You ever talk like that where you don't realize what you're saying? And then it comes to you later? (laughs) Sure. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud is the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. And they're full of fear. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this, that is Jesus, because the other two are gone. They've disappeared. And so the father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. These are all words from prophecies about the Messiah the servant of the Lord. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. They were scared to death. And they reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. We have it here in the text because once Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, they were free to tell about this. Now, what we have here, first of all, the king's people, and then we have the king revealed in uh, the, the second, fourth, and sixth story. And uh, we'll look at those in a little more detail. The first thing that happens in the second story is King Herod asks who Jesus is. He's one of the princes of this age who didn't recognize Jesus. And then In the fourth story, Jesus asked the 12 who he is, and they confess. Peter, I I don't know why God always does this, but he uses Peter. Peter's the one who says the goofiest things, and yet he's the one who says the most profound things. You are the Christ of God. In Matthew, it records that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, King James Version. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Isn't that amazing? that he understood who Jesus was. 
And then finally, the sixth story is Jesus is transfigured and the Father declares who he is. Now, uh, what I want to do now is take a little little closer look on these things. First of all, who are the people of God? First of all, we're the king's ambassadors. Just as the apostles were sent out to declare the truth about the king who had come and to the people who were expecting for a king to come. And when they announced them, they didn't believe, most of them. And we are God's, we are Christ's ambassadors. We're told that in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors of God. We appeal to men, be reconciled to God. Why? Because of what's just explained in, in 2 Corinthians 5, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we are good stewards of of the king's grace. Who passed out the food? Who dispensed the food? The apostles. Jesus had them dispense the food just like he has you and I to dispense his manifold grace. And so they are the, the good stewards. We are the good stewards of the king's grace. What a responsibility this is. This, this always gets me. This is a huge responsibility. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul says. In clay pots, quite literally. We're just human beings, and yet we have this glorious treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, as First Peter 4.10 puts it, God's given you a gift to dispense his grace, and he wants you to be dispensing it. He wants you to be dispensing it. He wants you to function as an ambassador of Christ and as as a steward of Christ to dispense his grace to not only to this world, but to his people. And then finally, we are followers of the way of the cross. Followers of the way of the cross. That's what he's called us to. Now that certainly means it isn't going to be an easy path. It's the way of the cross. The way of the cross is, I'm ready to die for Christ. That's easy to say, isn't it? I just said it. It's easy to say. But that's what he says. We are to walk in the way of the cross. In the last chapter, what we saw was some things in chapter 8. First of all, the necessity of tribulation in the Christian life. Not that it might happen or it's going to happen, but it must happen. In fact, in this chapter, we are told that it's necessary. In verses 22 and 23, the Son of Man must suffer. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So we are to go down the path of adversity, of tribulation. The apostolic church teaches the same thing. We're told in the book of Acts uh, that Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra and there were people who wanted to worship them because they were manifesting the power of the kingdom by healing the sick and so forth and casting out demons. And so people wanted to worship them. And they said, one of the things they said was to enter the kingdom of God, we must pass through many hardships. Isn't that good news? To enter the kingdom of God, if you enter the kingdom of God, faith in Christ, you're going to suffer many hardships. I don't like that either, but it's a fact. And the only reason you can like it is because God says, I will use this to test your faith and to transform you into the image of my son. And then we, were also, we also saw the conquest of tribulation in the Christian life. Who can conquer tribulation, trouble? Who can do it? 
Let me give you the answer since you don't know it. Jesus. He's the only one who can. And where does he live? In you. And he's the one who can can conquer this tribulation. And then the purpose of tribulation in the Christian life. Um, Disciples of Christ are neither free from tribulation nor are they helpless in tribulation. But in tribulation, God does a work in our lives. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now that means we're going to have some affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In that same context, the Apostle Paul says, you know, Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to me when I was in Asia Minor. We were tested beyond our ability to bear. He said, we despaired of life. I didn't think I was going to live through it. I thought I was going to die. Well, why would God do that? He says, in order that I might not no longer trust in myself, but in him who raises the dead. I got to tell you, from my own life experience, I know this. I've experienced this. There are times when I think I'm so full of faith, I can trust God for anything. And then I discover my response to situations that I'm a man of little faith. One of the things that I quoted here, we're not going to get to yet, but in chapter 16, where Jesus chides his disciples because he's already given them the power to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons, but they couldn't do it. And he says the reason they couldn't do it in this one case was because they were of little faith. They had no faith. God has equipped you to go through tribulation in faith. But why would he put you through tribulation? So that you would stop trusting yourself and put your faith in the one who raises the dead. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your heart. Trust Christ. And he's the only one who can take you through tribulation out to the other side. Now the next thing he does as the people of uh, the king, we are king, the king's ambassador, and we're followers of the way of the cross. We're followers of the way of the cross. You mean you've had trials in your Christian life? Have you actually had trials in your Christian life? I've had, I've had this question asked to me, and I've asked God this question so many times. Why are you allowing this to happen? Why? And I feel like God wants to say, do you ever read the Bible? Do you ever take my word seriously? Haven't I told you enough that I'm going to use tribulation in your life? That's for every single Christian. Now, who is the king? Well, he is, first of all, the king who is not recognized by the rulers of this age. We're told that in 2 Corinthians 6 and 8. But we're also told it here that Herod himself couldn't figure out who Jesus was. And so he, this is who this king is. He's a king who's not recognized by this world. The king that we serve is not recognized by this world. If you say, if somebody says to you, who are you? I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. He's my, he's my savior. He's the king that we serve. They would say, they would have more respect for you if you said, well, I'm a fan of the 
San Francisco Warriors. They go, oh, that's cool. (laughs) No, it's not. What's really wonderful is when you come to your senses and you discover that the king, who's not recognized by the people of this world, is the king. And you know, when you stop and think about it, I think we've all been kind of seeing uh, the manifestation of this in our culture. We want, a, we want a really good leader. I heard this girl give her testimony. She's been adopted by Francis Chan. She's the seventh. And uh, she's a teenager, about 15 years old. And I saw her giving her testimony about this. And she said, in my whole life, I never had a father who loved me and told me what I ought to do. And I thought, what a funny way to express that. You mean it's an advantage to have a godly father who tells you what to do? Yes. Yes, it is. We have a king. And some of his commandments shock us. But you know what? If you'll obey his commandments, you'll have a life of fruitfulness and joy. Not without trouble, not without tribulation. But it's going to, be, it's going to fill your heart with joy to follow Christ and to know what his will is. He's revealed his will in his word. And then secondly, we learn he's the Christ of God by the confession of Peter, by his disciples. And that's who we confess him to be. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, and, and, uh, in, and then finally, he's the one revealed by the Father. We saw that in the this Mount of Transfiguration. The Father gives his testimony. Twice publicly, the Father spoke so people could hear him. The father spoke so people could hear him. They actually heard a voice. They heard the voice of God. When Jesus was baptized, the voice said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Well, how do I listen to him? Am I supposed to hear voices? Is that what I should expect, to hear voices? No, I should, I, should, I should hear the Father through the word of God. And sometimes through his people who quote the word of God to me about a given situations. He is the one who is revealed by the Father. And let me just show you what the Father's testimony about the Son does for us. It says he is the prophet. That's why he says, listen to him. This is out of a, a context where that's exactly what it's talking about. Because he is, he is the one who speaks for the Father and we're to listen to him. He's a prophet. And we should listen to his voice that comes to us through the word of God. And secondly, he is the son. Uh, the, the Father says, this is my son. Psalms 2 says that the son of, of God is the king. Even the kings of Israel in the past were called sons of God because ultimately it points to Christ who is the son of God and who is the king that we are to trust that we can absolutely trust him and his commandments John says this in 1 John he says his commandments are not burdensome a lot of people who aren't saved have no relationship with Christ they think I don't see how they stand to do that I mean all these commandments all these commandments that they're given in scripture. I don't want to live under commandments. I want to be free. Oh, these are commandments that set you free. They're not burdensome. 
They are the fulfillment of righteousness in your life. In Romans 8, when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, the law of sin and death were the commandments on stone, just commandments. But now the spirit of God, through his word, speaks to our hearts, and we hear the voice of the one who died for us. Now, don't you like to get good advice from people, like you don't know what to do? I got in this bind about my email. I'm trying to figure out how do I secure this thing, and I couldn't even get it. It took me three days to get the password changed. I talked to people at AT&T. I yelled and screamed. I hate to admit that because it was sinful. It was like fleshliness, and it kind of tells me where I really am. But I was so frustrated because I couldn't get anything done. I couldn't accomplish anything and I love it when you finally get somebody. I finally got a guy on the phone who had a heavy accent, and he knew exactly what to do. And we accomplished it. I don't know what kind of accent it was, but he knew what he was talking about. So the, the father's testimony says he's a prophet that we listen to him. He is a son. Uh, oh, wow. And he is the servant of the Lord. That's what that, that phrase, when it says that he... Um, that he is the chosen one. That's from a text in Isaiah that's talking about the servant of the Lord. He is the servant of the Lord. And we're supposed to follow his example because he's shown us the joy of being the servant of the Lord. So we should ask ourselves, how are we doing as the people of God? First of all, are we proclaiming him? He's the prophet and we're supposed to proclaim his revelations. And we have this Bible that we can learn and we can communicate to people. We can communicate the gospel to people, the good news of the kingdom of God, and the good news of God about Jesus Christ. And then, um, are we honoring him as the king? How do you honor him as king? Oh, you obey him. In fact, the word for obey in the New Testament is the word to hear, but it really means to listen carefully. You ever say that to your children when they didn't seem like they were obeying and you said, listen to me, listen to me. Uh, <clears throat> the idea is that's obedience, to hear and to heed the word of Christ. And then finally, he's the, he's the servant of the Lord. Are we seeking greatness by serving? You remember what Jesus said when his two disciples were arguing over who was the greatest in the in the, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus. And the other disciples were angry. Why were they angry? Because they wanted to be the greatest. And Jesus said, we're not, we're, you're not like the Gentiles. True greatness in the kingdom of God is you serve. The servant of the Lord is the most lofty title of Jesus Christ. He's the servant of the Lord. In fact, he says that. He says, uh, my food is to do the will of God. God sent him to the earth to save us. And he said, my food is to do the will of God. And what was he talking about there in that case? About talking to this immoral Samaritan woman whom he asked to get a drink from. And he begins to interact with her. And she, she discovers this is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 that God promised that would come, the Messiah. 
and she comes. To, she ends up coming to faith, and many in her village become come to faith in Christ because she listened to him. And so, are we seeking greatness by servants? Are we servants of God? Sometimes <clears throat> I've told you about this book. That's title. I like the title. I've never read the book, but I like the title. The title is on evangelism. I mean, the, uh, t- the subject is evangelism, and the title of the book is Just Walk Across the Room. And what he means by that is talk to people about Christ. I have been trying, I, I think my sight is too low. I have been trying to talk people into talking to each other, Christians talking to each other about Christ. Because I know if you can't talk to a fellow believer about Christ, you're never going to talk to an unbeliever about Christ. Talk about him. And it's okay to talk to somebody who actually knows the Bible so that they can say to you, well, this is what the Bible says. For example, the Bible tells us how a man should treat his wife, how a wife should treat her husband, how parents should treat their children, how children should treat their parents. It tells us what the will of Christ is. And so we can talk to one another about Christ because we have his word. We have this God-breathed word that tells the entire story of Jesus. I saw this website, on this website the other day, uh, Bob Mounts, who's a Greek teacher. He has a, he has a class. It's called The 52 Stories of the Bible. And he claims that you can tell the story of the entire Bible by learning these 52 stories. Do you remember what it was like to tell stories to your children when they were small? Anybody? Right? Uh, I can still remember my wife telling our kids stories. I told you the other day, I remember her singing every morning, or kind of a sing-song voice about, to the girls, wake up, good morning, merry sunshine, and so forth. Well, guess what? That's what Christian parents have been called to do, to talk to your children about the reality of who Christ is. Now the problem is this, this is the problem. Our kids see us at our worst. They know the truth about us. So I can get up here and talk in very spiritual terms and talk about things as though I have achieved some spiritual maturity level. And, and if you talk to my children and my grandchildren, I have a grandson live with us now, He's, he knows what it's like for me to get angry and frustrated and talk to my computer. I think that's sin, what I've done. I've repented of it. I've asked the Lord to forgive me and to change my heart. And I really mean that. I want him to. Because I want to be able to talk to my grandchildren about Christ. And I want to have a life that testifies to the truth of what I'm saying. And that's what I pray for you as well. That we, as the people of God, can display the glory of God by living in relationship with this king, the king of glory. He's the high king of heaven, and he's coming back. I've been getting emails from some of you who think he's coming back right away. And I think, wow, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? If he came back next week, or if he came back in a decade, or a hundred years or a thousand years, it's going to be wonderful when he comes. And so we should live for him now out of joy in what we have come to know and understand about him. And I got to tell you, this is a complete library right here. This book, 
this God-breathed book, 66 books in this library, and they tell the full story of God and of what he has done in Jesus Christ. So you're rich. You're gloriously rich. You have the word of God. And we are to be people of the word. So let me pray. Our Father, we want to live lives that reflect the truth of who Christ is. We want to live the kind of life that that demonstrates the fact that we live under his authority. He is the king of glory. And we have come into the kingdom of God as well as into the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, there's only one body. It's made of believers all over the world who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for these blessings that we have in him. And I pray that they would sink deep in our hearts and control our hearts and control our lives. Use us for your glory, Father. That's our prayer. We desire to be people that manifest the reality of who Christ is and the way that we live. So we submit our hearts to you. And we ask you, please open our eyes and let us see truth and let us live according to truth and according to the glory of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.